1: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 152. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we basically riff on a few things from a visit to Chichen Itza in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico to the best field cameras that aren't smartphones and basically tablets and a few other things. So join us on this episode. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to
2: the show, everyone. Paul, how you doing? I'm doing OK. This is being recorded in the first week of April. And uh, I had two weeks of spring break and now I'm back full time faculty and staff are full-time at work. We've been spending you know, the last few days getting all our tech set up in all the rooms because the kids aren't all <laughs> going to be in, in person. Some of them are going to be at home, mm-hmm. some are remote in various ways. And even the ones that are in person are going to be cycled. So they're not all there at the same time. So we've had a lot of tech yeah. to get through. Nothing particularly interesting to talk about here, but yeah. So unfortunately, I had a next <laughs> couple of weeks off on break. So that was nice. Yeah. You've probably had some interesting things. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego?
1: Indeed. Well, we are currently recording from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My wife and I walked in about 15 minutes ago to this echoey room that we're in here. It's not really a hotel room and it's not really Airbnb. It's kind of a mix between the two, but it's like a little one bedroom place we're in in downtown Philly. And our RV is about an hour and a half to the... Well, it would be about 45 minutes if there weren't any humans. Like in the <laughs> apocalypse, it's 45 minutes away. But now it's like an hour and a half away because traffic. Yeah. And over near Redding, Pennsylvania. And we're there for two weeks just because we wanted to be up here in the New England area. And I happen to have a... Uh, a client that for the other work that I do that is here in Philadelphia. So Mm -hmm. I said, let's kill two birds with one stone. We'd never been to Philly. So we came here this evening to spend all day tomorrow. I'm going to spend the morning and afternoon with the client. And then we're going to do some Philadelphia stuff tomorrow and And Saturday, and just you know, see the see the historical sites. Really, I just want to watch National Treasure tonight with (laughs) Nicolas Cage, and then go do all the things.
2: So you know, that's like the tour guide that I know. That's all of I know of Philadelphia, really. So I I like it. It's a nice city. I lived there. You know, I I did my grad student work at Penn, so I lived for a number of years in Mm -hmm. Philly. I met my wife in Philly. (laughs) I have some friends that still live there, but I don't go down there much anymore. But it's it's a nice city. And if you're into history, there's a lot of you know colonial history, obviously. But then sure. there's also at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. There's all sorts of great archaeology, so it's definitely worth going to that museum if that's your thing. Mm-hmm. And if you're into art museums, the PMA is uh, is a fantastic museum. Plus, there are tons of other ones as well. But it's a very nice. walkable city too, which was nice because I like walking mm-hmm. all over the place. So I used to do that all the time and go to yeah. see the sites. Yeah. So I hope you have a good time there tomorrow after you're done with your work and can you know experience the city a little bit.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. It seems like, like you said, there's there's so much within just walking distance. That's why we kind of chose a place that's like right downtown. Mm-hmm. So we've got a we've got a parking garage, which is a, a pretty cool parking app associated. We basically just paid for two days, and we can go in and out with this QR code thing, oh, which is pretty nice. neat. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we'll need to like move the car till we leave on Saturday. Probably so, not. You know, we're just gonna be. Yeah, down here and hanging out. I might take the subway to my client meeting tomorrow because it's right. It's like three stops down the line, and we're Mm -hmm. on the line, I guess. Mm -hmm. So might try that. So yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. It's fun being here so far, but I'm looking forward to checking it out. So, and speaking of travel, so. We intended to record this, I think, while we were in Mexico, but my wife and I went to Mexico a couple of weeks ago. It was a trip that was canceled last year that was supposed to be at the exact same time. Hmm. And our credits for the resort and stuff that they that they usually don't let you <laughs> when you cancel a week yeah. ahead, a week before the trip, they don't usually give you that money back. Mm-hmm. And of course, during the pandemic, they did, but that stuff didn't last forever. So we had to take the trip or lose like $1,800. <laughs> so we took the trip. We were skeptical of it, but we are both vaccinated mm-hmm. and it worked out for us to just go there. And it was very safe. I felt all the precautions at the airports, all the precautions at the, with the people, uh, even from the, from like the taxi down to the resort at the resort, they were masked up all the time. None really? of the Americans were masked up. Yeah. We were usually the only people walking around masked up, but like nobody else was, you can tell they were all Americans, but also I guess uh, another good thing for us was, the resort was probably at like 40% capacity. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even close. And it's a massive place. So mm-hmm. 40% kind of felt like a ghost town until you went to dinner. And then you saw that there was other people there. But I mean, in like the pools and just like everywhere, there just wasn't that many people, which, you know, you know, pretty nice for us. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: you anticipated I was going to ask about the COVID precautions. Because <laughs> anytime I hear anybody yeah. traveling anywhere right now, my, my hair stands on end. <laughs> or would if I had any?
1: Yeah, indeed. Well, the interesting thing is Mexico doesn't require any proof of COVID negative or vaccination to get there. Mm -hmm. But the U.S. does on the Mm -hmm. way back. Mm -hmm. So and the hotel knows that and the hotel knows that most of their customers are from the U.S. So Mm -hmm. they had a pretty smooth thing where you scan this QR code takes you to this hospital website you tell them where you're going, what you're doing, where you're at, and they have a room on site in the hotel that you basically just go down there, you, you get the swab, and 24 hours later, you get your results. And so you book it you know, within 72 hours of leaving because that's when you have to have your negative test. And mm-hmm. if you're negative, they just send it to you by email, you upload it to a, an app online to do your check to get back into the United States, and it's everything is completely automated. And it was super... Super easy. I've flown into the United States from other countries before, never from Mexico. And I got to tell you, it was it was ridiculously easy. Like there wasn't really any customs. I mean, we obviously went through customs, but they're just like, do you have anything? Nope. Great. See ya. Yeah. Welcome to the country. And it was crazy easy to get back into North Carolina. So
2: So I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to guess that most of those unmasked Americans were mostly hanging around by the pool, drinking margaritas. And I'm going to go one step further to bet that you turned it into a bit of a busman's vacation. <laughs> you don't so, know the term. <laughs> I, I actually don't know the term, but probably. <laughs> well, a I'm guessing that you vacation? didn't spend. I'm, I'm a busman's holiday. I'm guessing that you didn't spend your entire time doing that, just sitting by the pool and soaking up the sun. I'll bet that you you turned it into something archaeological. I'll tell you what. We were there for seven
1: days. Wow, seven days at a resort like that mm-hmm. for somebody like me, even somebody like my wife. We we just couldn't handle it. You couldn't also leave that resort very easily. There were two gates to get into that area, one to get into the resort and one to get into the compound. Mm-hmm. The first day we came in, the guy at the at the main entrance to this road that went to a bunch of different resorts had like an M-16 hanging off his shoulder. He wasn't military either. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's just like the guy at the gate. So you go through that gate, and then you go down a bunch of roads, and it's this big open area of nothingness. No houses, no buildings, no anything until you get to the water. Mm -hmm. And then there's big resort hotels. And Mm -hmm. so it wasn't easy to get out of there. And so most of the time, you're just spending it at the resort. And I got to tell you, everybody says, oh, how was it? It must have been amazing, Cancun, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like... Yeah, to be honest, it was kind of boring because <laughs> there's only so much like sitting in a swim-up bar and drinking like crappy drinks that you can do. It was mm-hmm. all included, so you could just basically do whatever you wanted. But it was like there's only so much that you can do. There were days when we sat in the little tiki hut things by the ocean with like a queen size bed that was sitting right there. And we both had our computers open for like four hours at a time. (laughs) Just just like editing podcasts, you know, doing, doing whatever we're going to do. But we did get out for two days. We did two excursions. Those weren't cheap. I mean, I would have gone out probably every single day, but that would have cost us an extra two grand easy. Mm hmm. They weren't included in the thing, but, you know, there was all kinds of ruins. We're right in the Yucatan Peninsula. You know, we're probably, I think, like 15 miles south of Cancun. So we weren't in Cancun. Playa del Carmen was just to the south of us. We were actually closer to Playa del Carmen than we were to Cancun. All right. And I think Porta Moirades or something like that is where we were close to. Anyway, point is, we're on the Yucatan Peninsula. There's Mayan ruins everywhere. Tulum was to the south of us. Coba, I think, was another Mm -hmm. one that was relatively nearby. But when we were talking to this this guy about these excursions and tours and he's like Chichen Itza, I'm like, I mean, I know that's like the granddaddy, but I've never been there and you right. gotta kinda go there first, right? So so we booked that trip and it was a it was a twelve hour trip altogether, really kind of close to thirteen hours wow. from the time we left the resort to the time we got back to the resort. But I feel like mostly well done in its diversity and what we got to do and we'll talk about that. The Chichen Itza part was actually only a couple hours, which Hmm. was a little bit disappointing. But you know, there was a lot of other stuff that we did. So but that was really cool. And then we did we also did another trip that we won't spend too much time talking about because it was mostly mostly just to get out of the resort, but it was on a catamaran. We paid extra for the platinum service, (laughs) which they build it as more drinks and better drinks, but they also build it as fewer people. And we're like, yes, sign me up for that one. Because we saw the catamarans heading out to Isla Maharas, the island off the coast of mm-hmm. you know Cancun there. We saw the other boats going out and they had like, like 50, 60 people on these boats just like crammed in. Oh, and we're like, no, thanks. We'll pay the extra money for the boat that has fewer people on it. That's a little more comfortable. And we got to do some snorkeling and when we got out there, there was a golf cart trip where we're driving the golf carts and there's like this little caravan to the end of mm-hmm. the island where there was some Mayan ruins out there, some little ones. Got to see some of the local culture and, and flavor and stuff like that. And that was pretty cool. But. Chichen Itza is what we're going to talk about, but maybe we should start by talking about some Mayan experiences you've had lately and and set the stage a little bit.
2: Well, this is actually, I guess, apropos of me starting talking about the spring break that we just had was for whatever reason, a whole bunch of different webinars that I wanted to see all got scheduled like back to back, two, three a day that I could see (laughs) them and I wasn't at work, so I could actually see them. (laughs) And, you know, I've said that I'm quitting my job at the end of my contract this summer, and so my wife looked at me because she was still at work down in the basement in her uh, in her office space, mm-hmm. and I was upstairs in the living room, you know, going from webinar to webinar. And she looked, she's like, "Yeah, I see how your retirement's going to go. <laughs> you're just going to immerse yourself in this stuff, aren't you?" And I thought, "Yeah, that's nice, but yeah, you're you're bringing up specifically a couple webinars. You know, I've I've seen a whole bunch of different things on a bunch of different archaeological topics, and also some things that are not archaeological." Oh, I saw a very cool one about mapping Mm -hmm. and various projects with mapping in the Middle East and about the representation of places and place names and local populations versus the mappers who tended to be European. Anyhow, that's a whole other discussion, but that was a really cool one. But there was one a couple weeks ago now, week and a half ago, just before you went down to, to Mexico. That was looking at Chichen Itza, and unfortunately, I've forgotten the name of the speaker at the moment. And uh, I got pulled away halfway through, so I couldn't actually, you know, pay a whole lot of attention to it. But it was it was interesting. What she was building up to was looking at osteological remains, presumed human sacrifice victims, and mm-hmm. mapping them to different kinds of artistic imagery in the stucco carvings and stone carvings mm-hmm. especially like cranial images you know so like i can't remember the name of the platform but there's one platform with you know like 130 skulls around it
1: oh, uh, it's and, like thousands of skulls yeah, yeah. Like, maybe it's 1300
2: yeah. i can't remember those are the two digits <laughs> i remember in my head <laughs> i don't know where else i'd remember them but uh, <laughs> seeing that most of my facts yeah, i pull out of a, a different orifice uh, <laughs> but it was it was interesting. She was making a fairly cogent argument about mapping the you know the, these human archaeological osteological remains with artistic representations and trying to get at some of the actual practices of the human sacrifice, but it wasn't just about, you know, like mapping, you know, this kind of blunt force trauma to the head, to this, or, you know, this kind of cut mark on the base of the skull to, you know, to decapitation, something gory like that. But she was also talking about it also within the, trying to situate some of it within the culture, what the practices meant to them, you know, cause it wasn't mm. just wanton killing. It okay. was killing people for particular purposes, religious and ceremonial and political and so on. So it was, it, but I didn't get yeah. a whole lot. And then there was another one that maybe you saw that platform, right? The one I was just talking about with all the skulls. We did. We went right by it. It had like, it looked like a huge
1: platform, and the sides of it were made with what looked like about one foot by one foot square. Mm-hmm blocks with different skulls, all of them different. Yes. And I think they were, I'm trying to remember, they were probably like four high, four or five high, and just all the way around the whole thing. Yep. And every skull was different. Every representation was different, you know? And and to get on there, it was actually, if the guide was accurate, we had a guy walking us around telling us about all this thing. I don't know if these are the only people that got on there, but definitely one of the people that would get on there was when they'd have their big ball game, right? They had a huge ball court there. Mm-hmm. Whoever the final victor was, like that was their reward was sacrifice into the afterlife and their representation of their skull basically on this platform thing. So they like worked their whole life to be killed at the end of this game as the victor <laughs> and, and then put there. So I don't know if they put other people there like rulers and stuff like that or what they did, but that was one of the people he said, that's how you, that's how you got there. And your family was
2: like revered and stuff like that after you died and stuff. Huh. So... I wish I could have spent more time actually listening to this talk. I can't even remember what mm-hmm. went on, and I think it was some minor emergency at work, even though we were on spring break ostensibly. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, so I wasn't able to pay enough attention to really get to the meat of what her argument was. But it was it was interesting, just because this is one of the things that that I've always liked about archaeology is that it can bring together so many different kinds of evidence and ways of arguing and ways of trying to understand the past and the people in the past and that th- that just constantly feels refreshing to me every time i dip my toes into some yeah. f- field in archaeology some some region some time period some whatever that i you know some methodological techniques whatever that i don't know myself or don't know particularly well i'm always blown away by people bringing in you know, the different kinds of evidence that they have and the di- different ideas that they have and how we can, as a field, I mean, it's got to be probably more wide ranging than any other field of human scientific or humanistic in- inquiry, you know, and the different kinds mm-hmm. of data that you can bring to bear. That that always gets me interested. So I thought this was art historical and osteological. And I don't see that a whole lot. That's not, that's not a normal combination. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is, just in fields that I haven't experienced. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, let's
1: take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the Chichen Itza trip itself and how we did it. Because I feel like if you're an archaeologist or interested in history and archaeology listening to this, a lot of people go to Cancun. And a lot of people listening to this may have or may in the future try to do this trip. So Mm -hmm. I want to give people a little bit of a... A rundown of what it was like for us in the way that we did it. We'll do that when we get back from the break. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest? They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for thirty percent off your first three months, or go to zencastr dot and use the code Archaeotech. That's A R C H A E O T E C H.
2: Hi, welcome back to the architect podcast. This is episode 152 and Chris and I were discussing Chichen Itza and his travels lately. And I was talking about a webinar that I saw Kind of half saw because I was busy with other things, unfortunately. But unfortunately, before we started talking, I didn't write down the name. So I have the name of the speaker was Vera Tiesler. She's a professor at Merida. And the talk was for the Pre-Columbian Society of New York. And it was titled Heads, Skulls, and Sacred Scaffolds, New Insights on Late Maya Ritual Practices at Chichen Itza and Beyond. So I'm not sure if that's available online as a video, but you get a lot of the idea of what it was about just from that title. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I'll put a link to it if I can find an actual link to the video. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. So you wanted to tell us, Chris, about some of the practicalities of what you're doing there.
1: Yeah, because like I said in the last segment, I feel like there's probably a lot of people listening to this that have or will at some point go to Cancun because that's what people do here. Hmm. I'm surprised at, you know I'll be 46 years old in a couple days here. I'm surprised that I haven't been to Cancun yet, to be honest. So more than likely, it's the last time I'll probably go to a resort in Cancun, but probably not Mm -hmm. the last time I'll go to the Yucatan because I can see doing that vacation in a lot better ways from the standpoint of people like, you know, like us that would mm-hmm. go down there and do some things. And also just one thing to mention, you know, on this 12-hour tour in which Chichén Itzá was a small fragment of We stopped at this. I think one of the last real stops we had was in a typical Mexican city in the Yucatan. And we got to just hang out for like an hour. We had street corn, which I'd never had. I'd never had the corn on the cob on a stick slathered in mayonnaise and covered in cheese and hot sauce. It was delicious. I was a little afraid of the mayonnaise because it was disturbingly warm. But we didn't get sick and it was great. So... And when we got back into the van, the people that were on the tour, one of the guides was like, now you can go back home and tell everybody you were in a traditional Mexican city and didn't get kidnapped or shot at. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we, we know how most Americans see, see Mexico. We get it. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the actual Chichen Itza tour... Now, I don't know if this was a tour guide restriction, a COVID restriction, or what, but they weren't mentioning it. But once we got in to the, I guess, building that's the entrance to Chichen Itza where you get your tickets and then you hand them your tickets, first off, GoPro cameras we found out are considered professional camera equipment. And you either have to leave it outside or, and they'll check your backpacks on the way in too. Oh, my goodness. Or you pay a permit fee for basically professional camera equipment. They say you can bring it in, but you got to pay a fee for professional equipment. Yeah. It was the equivalent of like $2. So we're not talking like a lot of money here, (laughs) but yeah, I'm just saying it's, it was interesting to me that GoPros were considered professional, but like my iPhone 12 pro max was not. And I think it has a better resolution than my GoPro. Mm. So yeah, it's just, it's perception, right? So anyway, we weren't sure about that. The guy didn't tell us what the fee was going to be. So we actually left our cameras in the van and ended up doing all our shooting there with our, with our phones. So, you know, like I said, it's still good Still good Mm -hmm. good cameras. But so anyway, one of the restrictions was we had 90 minutes on premises from the time we got there to the time we left. Now, again, I don't know if that was a tour guide thing saying, you know, we got a lot of stuff to do today. And he was saying that the park says they only get 90 minutes with us in there. And I don't know how they actually monitor that because no one checked our tickets on the way out. But that's what he said. So if you go down there on a tour and you're not just walking in by yourself, keep that in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is there are vendors everywhere trying mm-hmm. to take your money for the same thing. I mean, everywhere. On the entrance in, on the outskirts of the park, it doesn't look like they're either not allowed on the main courtyard areas or it's just too hot out there and they stay in the trees in the shade. One of those two things is true. I don't know which one, but but they're aggressive and they're everywhere. And, and that's what I noticed about You know, all the different places we went, people were just aggressively in your face about selling you stuff if you were white. You know, you could tell that if you weren't white, they weren't aggressive about it. And the white people walk up (laughs) that want souvenirs. They're like, you know, here I one guy even was like, Look at this, cheaper than target. That was his phrase. I never forget the (laughs) phrase cheaper than target. But anyway, Chichen Itza itself, our guide, he had a lot of information. I don't know how current or fresh his information was. He is Mayan, which was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. You know, he's from the area, speaks a little bit of the language and, you know, has that heritage. So that was kind of neat. But the tour itself was was interesting. We did a lot of standing around in one spot while he told stories and gave information about the area. A lot of it was cultural information, not a lot of strictly archaeological information, you know, the science behind everything and mm-hmm. the, you know, the methods and the theories. Although, They did mention one thing because there was an open, an old open excavation that they left open on one side of the primary temple. And it showed like subsurface by several feet, probably about a meter or so, another like floor down there and like another rock building, like another stone building. Mm -hmm. And they said that they did what. The way he explained it didn't make any sense, but basically they did like a seismic analysis like you would do looking for gold or silver or something like that. You use the geophones and, and seismic analysis. It didn't sound like they used GPR, but it was more of a seismic thing to realize that underneath the the ground today at Chichen Itza, mm-hmm. the pyramid likely either continues or there's other surfaces down mm-hmm. there that are in there, which I thought was really interesting. Another thing I thought was interesting was he he showed us a diagram with a cutout. There's actually three pyramids, primary temple. Yeah, there's the primary temple and then the, the inner temple, which is... I can't know if I'm getting this right, which there's a space between the, the outer one and the inner one. And then there's one inside that one that's Mm -hmm. basically built right inside of it and has to do with, you know, some astrological things related to all that. Uh, If you're into like number theory, the numbers and the calendars and all the correlations between the number of steps and sides and, and all these different things on the temple were just really fascinating to me. And, I often wondered how intentional some of that stuff and how just kind of lucky some of that stuff was. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, but to be honest, that was the basics of the tour. We hit all the, the big spots in the complex there. I don't feel like it was too fast paced, but I would have rather had some time on my own to just walk around mm-hmm. and see stuff. But we would have had to have had some information. It's not like, you know, like a, like a national park in the U S or something where there's a lot of information. There were signboards mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but I feel like not enough for that kind of a place. You, you really have to go there with either a guide or a guidebook or an audio guide or something that's giving you information about, about what's going on there. So I, I will say that I'm glad we did it. I don't think we'd take a guided tour if we did it again. I'd rather just walk in the front door mm-hmm. and do it and spend as much time as we want there and you know just, just kind of have fun with it and do it at our own pace. But otherwise it was definitely worth seeing. And I wish we could have got a little more of the science behind it, a little more of the the current research and thinking and
2: stuff like that. But I didn't really expect that out of a tour guide either. Yeah, no, it's really a little shocking to me that you were there for such a short amount of time, because that's a major urban center. I know, you know, and as I've said before, I worked at Petra, I mean, totally different part of the world, but Petra tourists try to come in there and do it in a day and see all the different things, which means walking up and down cliffs and up and down Mm -hmm. into the mountains and such and in the desert. And invariably by the end of a few hours of that, they're, they're totally wiped out. The smart tourists take two days and they do it much more leisurely and they see a lot more of the site and they're yeah. much better. And it's not like a race through to check, you know, everything that you, you know, I went to the high place. I went to the, you know, to the monastery. I went to the, the, the Khaznad. And so smart <laughs> ones take a lot of time, a couple of days, and they do it on their own pace and they get a lot more mm-hmm. out of it culturally, archeologically, and even just as an appreciation of the landscape and the situation of the site. And I'd also been a long time ago when I was in... College. We went for a day to Teotihuacan, which of course is a massive urban center. And we didn't spend enough time there for me to really get a sense of it, but we did spend enough time for me to get a sense of how much I didn't have a full sense of it. You know, to just, I I understood the (laughs) scope of it, or I felt like I understood the scope of it, and that that I was just seeing a little wedge of it. And actually, that trip probably Mm -hmm. more than anything else is what made me go headfirst into archaeology. Nice. Um, So, to go to Chichen Itza and not have that ability to wander around and follow your own interests and see what you could of it and learn what the landscape looked like and felt like, and how the buildings and the plazas and the the courts and whatever else all relate to each other. It's a little bit of a shame. But then I've only been to that part of Mexico once, uh, to the Yucatan, and that was a good maybe 15 years ago. The kids were really little. We spent about five days, maybe a week at a small resort a little south of Tulum, maybe about 15, 20 Mm -hmm. minutes south of Tulum. So we went to Tulum and Tulum was very much a park in that there were paths that you could walk on. There were cords to stay on the paths. There were placards to explain what this building and that structure were. But then we also went to Koba, which is another, it's not as big as Chichen, Mm. but it's, it's another very major site, not too far from Chichen Itza. I don't know how they relate to each other in time. And that one, I don't recall it being very regulated in that same way. And so we did, in fact, walk all around and we saw things on our own terms. And only for a couple hours because the kids were really little. Mm-hmm. I think Armando was two at the time, but different experience. I mean, it might be totally different now because I'm pretty sure you can no longer climb up the pyramid at Coba. But when we were there, you could. There was a, there was a rope to use as a railing. And my wife went up to the top. I'm too afraid of heights to do that. <laughs> so wow. I helpfully stayed with the kids. <laughs> Those things are steep. They yeah, are yeah. really, really frighteningly steep. <sighs> yeah. That main temple at Chichen Itza is so steep. Yeah, yeah. So they might be totally different now. And maybe if you went to Koba in 2021, 2022, you would be cordoned off and regulated where you can go. But when we were there, it was it was definitely, you could get a bit of a sense of that urban center.
1: That was one thing about Chichen Itza too is, I mean, there was the huge courtyard area surrounding the temple, the main temple and everything else was kind of on the fringes in the trees and the bushes and stuff like that. But driving up to it, I mean, it was just like, where is this thing, right? Like you're not even going to see it. And we didn't, we couldn't even see anything until we went through the main building and then kind of opened up onto the grounds where the temple was. Like Mm. there's just no way to see anything and it's tall and it was just impossible to see anything. And I was going to mention that too, is you can't climb on basically anything at Chichen Itza anymore. They said it was back in 2005 or six or something like that. And they blamed it on too many tourists falling down the steps. Like It Mm -hmm. was so steep. Mm -hmm. People would just tumble all the way down and get hurt. I think it's probably better because just
2: knowing how people are, probably just not good for these things to have people crawling all over them. No, probably not. I mean, it makes more sense not to allow that. They certainly don't allow you to climb up the pyramids in Egypt, (laughs) even though there are all those pictures from Victorian travelers doing just that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I talked to a guy that's my one of my managers at this other company I work with, and he did climb up to the top of the temple at Chichen Itza and went into Mm -hmm. the building that was at the top back in the day, back in the day when Uh you could do that. Yeah. And I was like, man, that's, that's super cool. The only way you can do that now is to become a, a
2: Mayanist <laughs> and, and get to work at Chichen Itza. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I'm actually going to bring the conversation a little bit back to one of these webinars. Last night, you know, I've mentioned many times I'm on the board. Actually, I'm the vice president. That means I'm the president in charge of all the vice. Nice. <laughs> I'm the vice president of our local chapter, New York Society of the AA. And, we yeah. had a webinar last night, it was uh, Kenneth Seligson, is he a, he's a professor at Cal State Dominguez Hills. I didn't write down the topic, but basically he was at a site in Puk, which is a little to the west of Chichen Itza, and it's a slightly higher ground and there's much more surface limestone there. And mm-hmm. why I'm bringing this back to what we were just discussing is the ability to see what's around. You know, We've mentioned LIDAR plenty of times. He was using LIDAR and they were seeing rings. Okay, And so they investigated one of them on the ground and what they found were pits that were lined with stones and then had like residue of lime in it, like burnt lime. Really? Yeah. And he was using all sorts of different kinds of techniques, but including including some experimental archaeology. They built their own limestone kiln, basically. Hmm. you know, and collected the kinds of hardwood. So he was looking at the woods that were used from carbon samples and, you know, and so on. So they tried to replicate as closely as possible the ancient techniques. And so I thought again, back to what I was saying earlier about how I like archaeology because it can bring in so many things. I didn't know this about the geography there. I didn't know this about their limestone production, but a lot of the architecture is not just faced in lime plaster, but is also held together with lime plaster as uh, as mortar. So they were this is an incredibly important part of the construction activities in these ancient Maya sites. So that was really cool. They were getting at the actual practice of the production of this key component of their buildings. And they were using all sorts of different archaeological techniques and and anthropological techniques, frankly, to uh, to get at how this could have been and to make a very compelling argument that those rings were, in fact, lime kilns.
1: Right. That actually brings up something, that, an observation I made while there, and I just never... Never really thought about it. And if I had, I would have looked a little closer at the pictures, you know, growing up as an archeologist, always seeing pictures of Chichen Itza and, you know, other, other architecture like that down in that area. I never really thought about it though. We're always like, how did the pyramids in Egypt get made? These blocks are so huge. These pyramids are massive. How did they do it? You know, what Mm -hmm. were the methods? It's always been a huge question, but I never heard anybody question how the pyramids in the Yucatan were built, you know, Mm -hmm. how these temples were built. And, Once I was there, it became blatantly obvious. The blocks are much smaller. It's not rocket Mm -hmm. science, right? Like they're... they're made now don't get me wrong. They probably were not super easy to lift and move, <laughs> but, but way easier for just a few people to manage. You know, like I remember mm. my dad's always been in like quarrying and construction and stuff like that. And I always remember like the technical term for large boulders were like one man, two man, three man rocks. And I was like, why do they call them that? It's like, cause that's how many men it takes to lift them. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> not, it really isn't rocket science. <laughs> okay, great. It was, they still measuring things in cubits, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, right? <laughs> but anyway, looking at all the all the architecture out there from a distance, I mean, there's just so much detail and the steps, and it looks really cool. And then when you get up closer, you, you realize how small the blocks are that these things were made with, and and how they just they just fit everything together, shaped it, and that almost is more impressive than the pyramids because. The pyramids in Egypt, because sure, they had to shape these these blocks themselves and then move them into place. But that's like mm-hmm. an act, right? Like once they figured that out, they, they pretty much had it down. But these guys, I mean, it is millions and millions and millions of blocks to build these things. And it was just like over and over and over again and precisely carving them into the shapes they needed to have and then carving shapes into them mm-hmm. and placing them. And it was just it's super impressive to see up close. So... Yeah, that was yeah. that was really impressive to me. So,
2: well, why don't we go to a break and come back? You had a few other topics you wanted to talk about that weren't Chichen Itza.
1: No, <laughs>
2: <Let's>, <laughs> sounds good. All right. Let's
1: do that on the other side.
0: Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.
1: All right. Welcome back to episode 152 of the Architect Podcast. We are going to transition from Chichen Itza and the Yucatan and Mayan architecture, which in eight, nine years of podcasting. I think it's the first time I've actually talked about Mayan anything. I mean, it seems like in archaeology, you can't throw a son or swing a dead cat without hitting a Mayanist or somebody who has been to Belize 16 times, but I've never really talked about any of that stuff. So there you go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But anyway, so let's, yeah, let's transition a little bit because I want to talk about uh, a question a friend sent me and and then put on Facebook in the Archaeal Field Text Group. So if you happen to be in that group over on Facebook, go check it out. But mm. he basically said, what are the best field cameras out there that aren't smartphones and tablets? And I just, I want to talk about that phrase real quick, because could you imagine somebody asking that question even five years ago? Like what are the best cameras that are not smartphones and tablets? Mm. I mean, how quickly the tides have turned on that, right? I mean... Even, Like I said, even five years ago, you were almost hard pressed to convince a company that your phone camera and the apps associated with it could take the quality images that they want to use for submission to certain agencies and things like that. Mm -hmm. And now people have to ask the question yeah, okay, now I have a situation where I can't use my phone or tablet camera for whatever reason. What's the best point and shoot like field camera you can find? And it's just, it seems like a weird question to me. What was the reason? So he didn't really want to get into it. It sounded like there's some confidentiality stuff. Hmm. But the client was requiring it is the short answer to that question. The client was saying, no tablets, no phones. And my thought around that is that the client wanted to control the photographs for whatever reason. Maybe it's private land or something like that. They don't want people's personal phones or personal tablets. While they can record data, they don't necessarily want the pictures on there. I'm totally guessing here, trying to figure out a rationale mm-hmm. for this. And that way you can just take the card out or you can take the camera and turn it in at the end of the day. And they're, yeah. and they're kept separately on this device. That's the only thing I can think of, to be honest.
2: Yeah. I mean, I could imagine that they'd be fearful of the geotagging that usually happens on the phones and the automatic upload to your Google Photos or your Apple (laughs) Photo.
1: Exactly.
2: iCloud Photos, whatever it's called. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That'd be a control thing still.
1: Well, and it really made me think about some other stuff too, because, you know, obviously I work with WildNote a lot and Mm -hmm. I'm a consultant for WildNote and and I use WildNote in my own business practices for lots of different things. And... One of the things WildNote did early on from a data security standpoint was every time you take a photo within WildNote, and it didn't used to be like this. If you took a photo in WildNote, the photo Mm -hmm. stayed in WildNote. And if your device crashed or something crashed before you had a chance to save and sync that survey, you lost Mm -hmm. everything. So from a data security standpoint, they chose... To when you take a photo at the point that you take the photo, not when you save the survey, even not when you sync the survey, but the point you take the photo, it actually saves an image to your camera roll. And then it also saves it to wild So if you did (laughs) lose everything, you could rebuild the photo log from your camera roll. But there are so many potential issues with that because, I mean, I use people that have that have their own devices. Right. I mean, we'll provide tablets if you need, but I'm just like, if you're more comfortable with your own smartphone and it's capable Fine, use it. I don't care. The data is coming to me through the cloud, but the photos—the photos are in your photo roll. (laughs) There's not a whole lot I can do about that. And I got to ask myself: Well, do I care? Like, if this is a BLM project, like you could have just been out here taking these photos on your own anyway. So, from that standpoint, like, what's the big deal? You know, it's not like we're in some highly restricted area. Now, if we're out working, like I've worked at China China Lake Naval Weapons Center, in those cases, Mm -hmm. I think just by luck of the draw, without me even thinking about it, I provided tablets. And people used company tablets to record data and to take the right. photos, mm-hmm. which in that case was some some security for the base because they don't want those photos getting out, right? So, right. yeah. So that's, that's the only thing I could think of was a security issue as far as those cameras go. But it brings up another issue too. Like, it had been a long time since I looked up just like cheap point and shoot cameras and what they're capable of. And I just did a quick like Amazon search because, you know, that's the best way to search for anything. And you can get like a sixty dollar waterproof point and shoot 8X optical zoom camera that's got like a 16 megapixel processor on it for like $60. <laughs> that's
2: your <laughs> Amazon.
1: And I was like I was like, they're that cheap. I actually tried to look for like bundles of cameras. Like here's a pack of 10, you know, like a Pez dispenser for cameras. Like here's a pack of 10 cameras. Go nuts. I couldn't quite find that yet, but probably just because
2: I didn't look hard enough. (laughs) I would think that you might be able to find that in like classroom packs. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, you're totally right. But they'd also probably be crappy and marked up.
1: But I don't know, like these were these seemed to be just looking at their specs. I mean, I don't know what the body construction and all that was like, will they last us mm-hmm. a, a field season or, or a two month project? I don't know. But, you know, the problem with back in the day when we were using point and shoot cameras the biggest problem I had working with those types of cameras in an environment like Nevada was any camera where the lens extends and the little lens cover pops open like that. Yep. Man, after like the second day, it is just you can hear the grittiness as it
2: comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: it was crazy. Every so, camera
2: that we've had that's like that at some point can't extend or retract its lens and stops working.
1: Yes, sometimes absolutely. You, can, you can
2: fix them, and sometimes you can't. And that's that. I tend to baby my equipment.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to. The the first thing I noticed that always went was the little the little shutter. Yeah, the
2: little yeah one half yeah gets stuck. <laughs> it does that <laughs> exactly. instead of doing that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then somebody doesn't notice because you know they're either. I mean, most people would take those and look at the screen. And if you look at yeah, the screen while you're taking it. Yeah, the range finder. Yeah, if they're looking at the finder, it's not, it's not an SLR. So they don't even know that that happened. And you get a bunch of photos that are like this, you know, <laughs> with the blocking. So yeah, anyway. So that was an interesting question. I don't know. If somebody told you that you couldn't use a phone or a tablet out in the field, what would your solution be? What would you look for? Would you try to find just a throwaway or because they're decent these days? Or would you use something a little more robust? You're kind of a camera guy, so.
2: Yeah, no, I think it really depends. If the conditions were really harsh, then I'd probably be inclined to get something for that project that I mm-hmm. wasn't emotionally attached to in any way. But on on most cases, I mean, I always took, because I used to do photography on various sites as the site photographer, and I always brought my personal cameras along. Yeah, And that was, again, that's back in the film days, but uh, these were autofocus cameras, not, you know, like K1000s. That you know you can hammer nails with these had to be treated with uh, a little delicacy and they and they tended to last. I mean, I had a couple lenses that got a little crunchy on the uh, the zoom, but but not much. But so right now, what I would do is I would take the camera that I got for my birthday last year, which was a Panasonic Lumix G eighty five. Yeah, and that one it's like a five year old model at this point. It's a mm-hmm. it's a mirrorless. Micro Four Thirds sensor, so it's not—it's a fairly small sensor for a uh, for a component camera, one that has separate lenses. But because you can get good lenses, it works really well. Also, that one is weatherproofed, so you know, aside from changing lenses in the field, yeah, you don't want to like drop in a puddle, and you don't want to like let it get out into the sand dune or something. But if you're treating it carefully, it's going to be great. It's going to be able to withstand mm-hmm. a bit of a dust storm. It's going to be able to withstand, uh, you know getting rained on a bit right and the funny thing is the YouTube algorithm has thrown a lot of reviews about this camera onto my <laughs> feed lately and in very you know, they're like you know the Lumix 20 uh, g85 20 is it still worth buying in 2020 or is it's still worth buying in 2021 and it, and video bloggers love this camera really nice it does 4k video and they yeah. and they just rave about it so, the answer to all these is always yes, yes, yes. You know, oh, on paper, it doesn't look nearly as good, but look at the actual photos I've taken with it. Look at the video I've taken mm-hmm. with it. So, so yeah. actually, this is a long-winded way of me saying that I would be inclined to take that camera, which is my baby right now, into the field mm-hmm. unless I knew that that was going to be folly for whatever reason. And then I would sure. get something cheap that I don't care about, and if it dies, so be it. <laughs> Nice, nice. Well, I would say one thing to look for too, especially
1: if dust is your concern, it depends on where you're working in the country. If you're anywhere in the mm-hmm. West, dust is probably your primary concern. Mm-hmm. If you're out in the Southeast or or even some places on the East Coast, depending on the time of year, you're probably more worried about the odd rainstorm or even yep. extreme humidity, right? Yeah. So, and, and that's another thing to worry about on these, these really hot areas in the summer. If you're taking your camera out, even if you're sitting in the field truck at lunchtime and you're going back out to take photos or something because you're, you're close to the truck and you've got the air conditioning blasting, you've got to let that camera come back up to temp- temperature or all the interior surfaces are going to be cloudy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so keep that in mind. But the one thing I was going to say as far as like the uh, the IP or IPX rating, I think it's called, that, that says like how waterproof mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or dustproof it is. Yeah. Sometimes they don't mention dustproofing and sometimes they do. But basically, if the device, whatever device you're talking about, if it's submerged in water, it's more than likely going to withstand the dust because yeah. that's the impregnation of you know water coming into it. That means it's submersible. Yeah, I think water resistant usually means it can stand some rain, and waterproof means you can sink it. And waterproof usually means dustproof, just just by virtue of you know water and dust particles. So
2: yeah, but that's a great point about the about condensation because that's absolutely true. Because you wouldn't think about no. that; it's sealed up, but it's not. Yeah. You know what's sealed in. It's that hot, humid air that's sealed in, in which case that's going (laughs) to, that's absolutely going to condense. And like I said, you know, the component cameras with the removable lenses, that's, that's always a source of, of problems. I mean, that's how I killed my last camera. We're in Iceland and we're right on the coast and there was wind blowing up and there was a volcanic sand Mm -hmm. and I changed lenses and yeah, it just stopped working that day. I thought I was good about it. I thought I did it really quickly and shielded from the wind, but apparently some of those (laughs) those really fine-grained, very abrasive volcanic pumice particles, basically, got into some component inside the body, not inside the lens, and killed it.
1: Well, that reminds me, something you said earlier about your mirrorless camera, your Lumix, maybe... I feel like you'd be a better one to explain this than I could because you hear that term mirrorless floated around Mm -hmm. a lot. Right. And I, it came back to mind for me when I was looking at, when my friend asked me that question, I was doing a quick Amazon search to see what's out there these days. You've got mirrorless cameras and non-mirrorless cameras, cameras with mirrors. So can you Mm -hmm. give a quick difference between the two and and like, why would you want a mirrorless versus a non-mirrorless camera or a camera with a mirror,
2: I guess? Right. We've mentioned, you know, your point and shoot and most of those have just a screen on the back right mm-hmm. some of them also have a little window that you can look through and that's like the old film cameras from 100 years ago you know that's a rangefinder so that's one style DSLR is basically an old SLR, and SLR stands for single lens reflex, but instead of film, it's got a digital sensor. So that's where the D in DSLR comes from. And what that is, is that there's Mm -hmm. a mirror and a prism. So the light comes in through the front of the lens and bounces up and then through the viewfinder. So you look through the viewfinder and mirrors point it straight out the lens. And that's what you're seeing. A mirrorless is basically between that point and shoot and the DSLR. It doesn't have mirrors- but when you look through the viewfinder, what you're seeing is another screen, very small, mm. so that you're seeing exactly what the lens is still seeing, but it's not done with mirrors. It's done with another electronic display that's in the top there. It means that there are less moving parts in it, yeah, which is definitely a good thing because moving parts tend to be what break in most mechanics and electronics. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's kind of redundant in mechanics, but you know what I mean. <laughs> the mechanical bits of most electronical gizmos is what give out before the electronic bits. Right. Like on my camera that I got the volcanic dust into, right? It was the mechanical parts that gave up the ghost. And so that's that's basically it. When I say mirrorless, I mean that there's actually a very small display that's mounted inside the viewfinder, and that's what you're looking at. And so- sure. What you're seeing is done fully electronically instead of with mirrors. Right? Okay. So, but when you talk about mirrorless, you tend to mean these cameras that come in components—a larger body and a lens that you can remove and attach different kinds of lenses to. And so that mm-hmm. gives you the advantages of the older traditional SLRs and DSLRs, which can come with any of hundreds of different lenses and thousands if you have adapters.
1: Right now, it's not a panacea for not having any problems of course right I oh, mean sure when you have mechanical pieces they can break but I imagine if that
2: tiny little display display breaks that's not easy to fix <laughs> oh no 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 I can't imagine it would be and again like I said it with the removable lens that's always an opportunity for dust sure. or bugs or water or whatever yeah yeah. you know errant fingers <laughs> to get in there not that I've yeah. ever seen that happen yeah <laughs> Nice. All right. Well, in the last couple of minutes here,
1: I just want to find out, because we've mentioned this a few times, you are, and I think you mentioned it on this show already, but mm-hmm. you are, is retiring the right word or you're finishing
2: your job? <laughs> from the point of view of my employer, the school that I've worked at for now, I'll be finishing my 21st year there. Yeah, I'm retiring from the school. Okay. Point of view for me is there's no way I can retire because I'm way too young and have not nearly enough savings to retire. My IT career in lots of ways derailed my archaeological career, my archaeological ambitions. Mm -hmm. And since the death of my son and my daughter now being a college student, she's finishing up her sophomore year, my daddy duties are greatly reduced. So I'm working at trying to be a field archaeologist again. So I want to start in at the ground level of being a field tech and then see if I can ramp up quickly because, you know, it's always been what I love doing the most. I really do think we need to put a t-shirt on the APNT public store with just
1: your, I'll see if Anna from the dirt, she's an artist. I'll see if she can draw Mm -hmm. up your face and we'll put Dr. Field Tech on there (laughs) and we'll give you that shirt to wear in the field. I think that would be, I would buy that shirt. I want to wear it. so. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I was just trying to find out are you Are you looking for anything nearby to start working on over the summer? Because this is your first summer of eligibility as a free agent, so to speak.
2: Yeah, I am. I've already started. You know, I've been on shovel bums and uh, archaeology field work, and I've got LinkedIn sending me emails and Indeed sending me emails and such nice. for field jobs. And uh, and there are a few that op- have opened up on the Northeast, but for the most part, again, I'm looking at entry level right now because I don't know yeah. CRM archaeology except for what I have heard from you and what I listen to on the CRM Archaeology podcast, which I guess is- Well, that means you're an expert. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and I don't particularly know North American or Northeastern archaeology. Right. I don't know historical archaeology. I don't know the, the specific terminologies. I don't know the specific artifact types. I don't know the methodologies that are in use. I know what part 106 is, but I don't know how it gets applied in practical terms. So I Mm -hmm. want to just come in at the ground level because this is a great learning opportunity. And so I'm going to I'm going to be doing that. And but what I've seen so far in all these searches is there's a lot of stuff that's opening up right now on the West Coast and in the Southwest and comparatively Mm -hmm. less, less stuff. But there is stuff in the southeast comparatively a lot fewer in the Northeast where I live. The one gotcha that I've got is that most of these things are for hiring for projects that are coming up right now. And I want yeah. to get on people's Rolodexes for the middle of summer. So not right. the ideal time to get into that. So we'll see. It's, it's early, but I do have to get moving quickly. And for you kids out there, a Rolodex
1: is a list of contacts <laughs> that people used to keep.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, I, um, I, I use that term and every time I use it, I think the same things like... It's like the, the, the floppy disk icon on Word documents to save. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows what that is anymore. No. But there isn't no, a good replacement no. term for Rolodex <laughs> as far as I can think. Your contact book. Yeah, there, great, there really isn't. I, th-
1: I think it's your contacts.
2: It's just contacts. because yeah, nobody had a personal it, so. Rolodex, right? <laughs> Rolodex
1: implies no, business world. no. <laughs> It really does. It really does. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I think we'll call it. If you are listening to this podcast, which you more than likely are, and by that I mean you're listening to the audio version of this, we do mm-hmm. have a video version. Go find Archaeology Podcast Network on YouTube. You can go to arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech forward slash 152 to find a link to the YouTube video, assuming I got it done in time for this podcast. And you can find that over there. Now, the YouTube versions of these, I will tell you right now, if you want to see like a more, a little bit raw, slightly more candid, although Paul and I are pretty good and we don't make a lot of mistakes. Never. uh, I don't edit those. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't have time to edit video for the podcast, so I'm literally just chopping those into the three segments. I've got no breaks. There's no ads or anything. I've just got a little bit of break because we call a break. And then you can watch the YouTube video of us doing the same thing. So there's not going to be anything extra there. But if you are more of a YouTube person than a podcast person, you want to have us up on the TV while you're doing housework or doing some other stuff, then it's open for you to do that. So
2: yeah, I'm going to toss. No, we're going long, but I'm going to toss one last little bit of tech in here. Mm -hmm. If you compare the video of this one right now, uh, you see my light is changing. I've sometimes in shadow, (laughs) now. I'm very blue. (laughs) I think I've been been a little orange earlier. I'm just using the built-in camera on my laptop right now. The last couple, I probably look better. Well, I don't look better, but the the image looks better because I was using my... (laughs) mirrorless camera with a good lens that has good bokeh, which is that pleasing blurriness to the background, whatnot. and so I've got that hooked up on my in-the-country computer so that I can have good-looking video when I'm on video calls. I just don't have that in this particular location. But that's another reason for having a good camera, I think, is this: <laughs> while we're in this virtual world, <laughs> it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't hurt to, yeah. to try to look good on these videos. Right. Well,
1: on that note, I think we'll call it. Go check out the video. Check out the show notes for this podcast for some of the webinars that Paul mentioned that he's been to. And I would say, even though a lot of us,
2: more and more of us are becoming vaccinated, I would say Paul's advice still stands. Yes. Please wash your hands, wear your masks, socially distance, be sensible, be responsible. I want to get out of this. We're not out of it yet. I really want to get out of this. (laughs) <laughs>
1: All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care.
2: Thanks for listening to the architect podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash archaeotech. Contact us at Chris at Network.com and Paul at Lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This
1: episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV, Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.